0: Welcome to Sense and Sensibility, the Inflation Guy podcast. I am Michael Ashton. I am the Inflation Guy, and I am your host. And on today's episode, we're going to talk about rents and how rents enter into the calculation of inflation indices. I guess you could call this episode, and I guess I will call this episode, Rents and Sensibility. So, Rents are the biggest portion of the consumer price index. Actually, they're the biggest portion also of PCE and and pretty much every other price index because shelter is sort of the first thing. The most important thing that we buy is a roof to put over our heads, I guess, after food. Uh, And it's one of the most expensive things. And so it, it has a very large weight in the consumption basket it turns out that the weight in the consumer price index is is a lot higher than it is in the the personal consumption expenditures index the pce that the fed uses but that's not really the topic of our conversation today the bottom line is it's a very uh, a very large weight in both indices and and so getting that part of the basket right matters you know if you have a small category of you know, a tenth of a percent, and you don't quite figure out correctly how to measure that inflation for that tiny little piece, it's not all that important. But when you're talking about 40% of core inflation, if you mess that up, then your inflation index is just going to be wildly wrong. And so it's sort of really important that we get that, that number approximately correct. And yet, there are lots of people who think that the way that the BLS calculates rents and the cost of shelter uh, is wrong. And, and it makes some people very, very angry. You know, there, there are still some bozos out there who lament the change that the Bureau of Labor Statistics, the BLS, made to the calculation of shelter inflation way back in 1983. And these people claim that you know, the government has essentially hidden a tripling of prices uh, that we just didn't notice over those 40 years by systematically reporting too low a number for shelter. It's absurd, um, and I will probably return to this point over and over again over the next weeks, months, years, uh, because it really is sort of crazy. It's very easy to prove that, uh, that those assertions are incorrect, but somehow it still persists. Um, Again, you know, it's coming up on 40 years since the BLS changed the treatment of owner occupied housing in the, in the CPI. And, and we have a, an answer that we have a a way to calculate rents that makes some sense. And, and I'm going to explain to you why it makes some sense and and hopefully, uh, hopefully convince you. So, There are two in in shelter, there's sort of two ways that people consume shelter. One is, well, three ways if you count living with your parents. But that doesn't get into the CPI. So one way is to rent your residence. Okay, we call this rent of primary residence. And that means that you either rent an apartment or you rent a home uh, directly, but you don't actually own the thing that you're renting. So... Let's, we're going to start with that piece. That's a smaller piece than, than the owner-occupied housing, and we'll, we'll get to that in just a second. But but let's first look at, at primary rents. And this is topical now because surveys of primary rents right now, of asking rents, are rising at something like you know, 16% or 18% or 20% over the last 12 months. And a lot of people are confused about why that number – is not getting into the CPI. And again, there's the people who think that it's a big conspiracy that, you know, rents in the CPI are only going up at 3% and rising or something like that instead of going up at 18%. Uh, But there's a a very good reason for that. Uh, There's good reasons for all these things. You just have to dig into the number a little bit and understand how this all happens and why it happens. And Remember that the CPI is, is a weighted average basket concept. So it's a weighted average of of, of all of the different consumers. Um, so if you think about rents going up, let's suppose 16% to make the calculation easy here. And let's suppose that 25% of the people in the country move in a given year and they face a 16% higher cost of that of of their rent and everyone else doesn't move then in the then in the basket in the CPI that rent of primary residence will be a quarter of the 16% that's being measured or roughly 4% and and so there's really two components here when you're looking at these these surveys of asking rents rising and rising and rising. And one of them is, is what's the turnover of renters? And if the turnover of renters is very, very low, then even a very high increase in asking rents doesn't translate into a very high uh, CPI. So normally, the CPI for, for primary rents moves along with asking rents. It just moves at a, a a fraction, a delta of that, that has something to do with how what the turnover is of renters. Now, this does introduce some problems when you have very large changes in rents. You can imagine that when asking rents are going up at 20% per year, you should have less turnover. You know, you're more likely to sort of sit on that apartment that you don't really love, but you know, the landlord's only going to increase you 3% this year instead of going out to find another apartment that's going to be 20% more expensive. Um, and and it's not clear that this gets captured really well in the CPI, but this is sort of a second order effect. We don't worry too much about it. And then, of course, there's also sort of the, the one-off effects, like, you know, will people move less because of COVID? And that's, Probably the case. People are probably going to move less because of COVID. And again, it's not really clear that that gets captured in in the right way. But usually CPI and asking rents do move together, not at the same level. What's interesting is that since essentially August of 2020, asking rents and rent to primary residents have not moved together. Uh, asking rents and realized rents have not moved, and there's a there's a very clear reason why this has happened, and and that is that uh, at the end of the summer of 2020, when most of the country had been on lockdown for quite a time, uh, the the CDC declared an eviction moratorium, and they said you can't you know it doesn't matter if somebody doesn't pay or or you know, trashes the apartment or whatever, you you can't evict them except in very, very limited circumstances. And so what that meant was, you know, two things. One is that uh, there was very, very, very little turnover. Um, and And so the fact that asking rents were very high, it didn't really matter because nobody was actually, there were very few people actually paying asking rents. But the other problem was that, the way the bls calculates rents you know they go and they ask landlords you know what how much rent has been collected on this unit and how much do you expect to eventually collect on this unit and if the answer is this guy's a deadbeat and the cdc says he i can't evict him and so i don't think he's ever going to pay then that becomes a zero in in the rental survey and there weren't a lot of zeros but there were a number of less than 100% numbers, and, and it doesn't take too many 40% offs to really affect the, the annual rate of change. And so that's the main thing that happened is that we get this artificial uh, uh, depressing of the rental survey. And, and my belief, and I think a, a kind of widespread belief is that now that the eviction moratorium has been uh, thrown out a couple of times now, um, that we're going to start to see rents, measured rents in the in the CPI start to catch up uh, where they they might otherwise have been. Uh, furthermore, we still have these large changes in asking rents, and so you know, increased turnover means that those are going to pass more and more into the CPI as well. And so over the the next, six months, we don't really know how fast this is going to happen, but over the next six months, 12 months, you're going to see uh, rent in the CPI go up substantially in the order of four and a half, five and a half percent which will cause core CPI to be much higher than it, than it otherwise would be. And part of that is just a catch up. Um, and part of it reflects great strength in the housing market. So, Let's talk about the housing market because the other part of rents, you know, that was rent of primary residence that you go and you, you you pay rent to a landlord. And so that's pretty easy to understand. And You can imagine how you go about surveying it. And you can look on the BLS website, bls.gov CPI, and they have all kinds of papers and they, they explain in great detail, very mind numbing detail, how they go about collection, collecting the rental survey. I'm not going to go into that here because my job is not to numb your mind, but to fill it. So the next part of rent and the bigger part is owner's equivalent rent. And this is the part where people get really angry, upset. And they say, you know, look, home prices are rising at 20% year on year, according to the Case-Shiller Index. But, you know, almost any, any survey of housing prices you look at. Why isn't... Owners' equivalent rent going up at twenty percent because the, the cost of houses, you know, the, the value of houses, housing is going up that fast, and it really is not actually as much a uh, an answer. You know, the answer doesn't isn't entirely about turnover, like our answer for for primary rents was. Um, it is in a way, but not directly the real problem and what's really confusing to a lot of people is that when you buy a house, when you buy a home, you actually are buying two things. Okay. So you've just bought your nice, nice house behind the white picket fence and and all that. And you have two things. One is you have, you've bought a service, you've bought shelter. And, and the other thing that you've bought is an asset that someday you'll be able to sell again. And, and so the recognition in the early nineteen eighties was that you have to separate those two things. That the value of the asset can change quite a bit, and it doesn't mean that the your cost of shelter is is changing a whole lot. And and by the way, it, it you know arguably you can make the same argument for things like, you know, for other durable goods, for example, uh, automobiles. You know, you buy mobility when you buy a car, but you also buy um, an asset and eventually you'll resell the car. So you can make a very similar argument, but in the case of a car or refrigerator or a uh, washing machine, those things depreciate at a much more rapid rate. So it's, it's less of a problem if you, if you sort of ignore the fact that you own an asset and, and, and the resale value um, and treat it like it's more of a, a uh, consumer expense, a, a current expense. So, but does it make sense to go and separate these two pieces, the ownership part and the rental part? Well, let's think about somebody who is just entering into the, the, uh, the shelter market. Um, why would somebody who is just buying shelter for the first time, so he's just left um, his uh, mom and dad's basement and he's buying shelter for the first time, and he faces a choice between buying a home, uh, you know, a nice, uh, humble, modest home, you know, taking out a, a mortgage and, and going and buying a home or going and, and renting a nice place and looking at those two, you know, cash outlays and, and, you know, taking on a large liability for buying a home and home prices have just gone up 20 percent you know, on, that's, that's on one side of the ledger, and on the other side of the ledger, he says, okay, well, you know, rents are high, but I know that if I rent a place that, you know, they're not going to keep going up 20% while I live there, and so, you know, I know that my cost of living in the, uh, that apartment will only go up, you know, 4% a year or something on average over the next couple of years. Why would that person go and buy a home as opposed to renting? And the answer is, which is, uh, immediately obvious if you've ever bought a home, is that in the first case, you you own something, right? You actually have something which at the end of the time you've lived there has some residual value. So yes, you're paying for your mortgage and yes, you've taken on this large debt, but you end up getting something out of that. And it isn't just the shelter, it is the asset. So that, there clearly is something different about a home compared to an apartment that you're that you're living in, and so it 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 makes sense that certainly consumers do place a different value on a home. They they impute something other than just a place to live uh, in a home that they're going to own. That ownership does mean something; it does have some value, and so that's why it does make some sense to try and separate these these uh, two things out. And so what the BLS essentially does is say, let's try to separate out these these things. How do, does an economist look at these two two things? And for that matter, how does a, a trader think about uh, a bundled transaction? You know, really, uh, you know, I was a derivatives guy for many years and, and a derivatives trader thinks about these things in, in a similar way. If you have a sort of weird derivative that you're trying to figure out, one of the things that you do is you say, well, what kind of pieces can I put together that which will give me the same net payoff in all circumstances uh, as the thing that I'm trying to buy? And then that collection of things that, that equal the same thing, um, I can add up all those prices and I should be able to get to the price of the derivative. And essentially, economists are doing the same thing when they look at, at owner-occupied housing. So they say, okay, imagine these two equivalent situations. In one case, you own a home and you live in the home. Very simple. okay. And we've, we've stipulated that we believe that that means that you're getting two things. You're getting an asset and you're getting rent. Uh, but how do we separate these things? So the equivalent situation is you own a home. But instead of living in the home, you rent out that home and you use the rent that you collect to rent an apartment that you live in, so that the rents net out. Now these situation, these, these circumstances are equivalent in that in both cases you own a home. In both cases you acquire shelter. But now we can see that there's very there's two very clear cash flows here, two very uh, clear components to the transaction. And one of them, you can simply look at the rent that you're charging and the rent that you're paying is clearly the cost of your shelter. And in the other, you still have the home, you still have the asset. And so, and that's effectively then what we're doing is, and so when the BLS goes and they they say, you own a home, but we're going to, to look at what it would cost you to rent a home. Some people get upset about that. They think that we're going around and asking individuals, well, how much do you think your home would rent for? And that's not the way it works. But, but that's, a, that's effectively what we're trying to do is separate out and say, what does a, a rental uh, of this unit really end up looking like? Now, the BLS has been doing this, as I said before, for almost four decades, and it works very well. Many, many other countries use a similar method. Um, there are some countries that still use a, a mortgage rate or a blended mortgage rate as as a way of, of measuring the cost of owner-occupied housing. And this makes some intuitive sense because it is kind of what you're paying uh, out of pocket, um, at least on average around the country, you know, the average mortgage rate, you know, is, is something like what you're having to pay for, for that owner-occupied housing in a way. You can see that that introduces other problems. What happens if you buy a home for cash? Then, then what's your cost of living in the home? Zero? That doesn't make any sense. Uh, we just sort of established that the answer is not zero, um, and you also introduce this recursion problem that if the level of mortgage rates affects your measurement of CPI and your measurement of inflation then affects your mortgage rates, then you end up with this problem. And the problem is that you're, you're obviously you're, you're affecting the thing that you're trying to measure. Uh, and obviously, we don't really want to try to do that. So in a nutshell... The BLS says that whether you live in an apartment or you live in a home, you are paying rent and that's consumption. When you you pay rent, you're paying it to the owner of the asset. The only difference is that when you own the home, the asset owner is you. So it makes sense and sensibility. And now you understand the the largest weight in the consumer price index. I hope that was helpful. If you enjoyed or were educated by this podcast, uh, please subscribe, Uh, download the Inflation Guy app that's in your Google Play store or your Apple, uh, Apple store. If you want to send me a message, you can send me a message from the Inflation Guy app or you can go to our website, uh, www.enduringinvestments.com and you can fill out the contact form, send me a a comment there. If you're curious about what else I do and what else uh, my company does, then you can go to that website, enduringinvestments.com and and poke around. And again, if you're interested in, in finding out anything more, you can send me a note. Thanks for tuning in to Sense and Sensibility. Again, I am Michael Ashton. I am the Inflation Guy. My message to you, as always, is defend your money. If inflation is coming for you, remember, you know a guy.